Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Greetings, programs. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hail and well met, fair gentles. Oh, well, now that's a completely different era. Yeah, well, that's where we're kind of going. We're going to start this off with a little listener mail. This listener mail comes from Annette, and Annette says, Dear John and Chris, but especially John. Hello, my name is Annette, and I'm a listener of Josh and Chuck's uh, podcast. She left that bit out. I suggested that they do a podcast about the Renaissance Fair phenomenon and creative anachronism. They referred me to you because you're going to star in a Renaissance Fair. I understand that this is not a typical tech stuff topic, but Josh seems certain that you can work it in somehow. What do you think? <laughs> By the way, they say you guys smell. Their words, not mine. <laughs> Best, Annette. Of course, I think we've We've already fired back with the you smell uh, volley that that went up a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, well, frankly, I'm, I'm not sure how we devolved into you smell, no, you smell, but I no, don't they, want to get into that. They started it. <laughs> they started it. Well, Annette, thank you very much for the email. And yes, it is true. Uh, I am in a, uh, a local Renaissance festival. Um, just so you know, my character's name is Lord Admiral Edmund Vainglory III. That is not a joke. <laughs> and we're going to talk today about the tech of 1510. Awesome. Does 500 that, years ago. Does that mean we need to get in the time machine? Uh, let's not do that because it would be an entire episode in, in the past. And I think Liz would kill us. <laughs> but we are talking about the, the technology of 1510. So let's set the stage a bit. 1510. Uh-huh. King Henry VIII has been on the throne for a full year. Really? He should – never mind. No, not – King Henry VIII <laughs> has ruled England for a full year. That's better. Uh, yeah. He uh, he was coronated in 1509, got married to uh, to Cat, his first wife. Cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're really close. Actually, no, we're not because he was divorced by the time – well, anyway. So 1509 – Oh, 1510. Sorry. 1510. Uh, what kind of technology was around at this time? And uh, can we really call it technology? One of the uh, – okay, of course we could call it technology. I mean uh, lots of things are technology. They just don't seem like it now that we live in an age where there are lots of circuits and things that beep. I thought that was an important point to make and I'm <laughs> glad you made it. <laughs> um, yeah, because I mean thinking back to our uh, what's better, paper or digital – podcasts, I was thinking, well, you know, paper is a technology. Before they had that, we really didn't have some kind of portable, lightweight method by which uh, information could be preserved like that. Yeah, so, I mean, clay tablets were not lightweight. No, no. Or were they particularly uh, uh, strong? They didn't last forever, you know? Yeah. Paper stone lasts is a pretty, pretty long sturdy. while. Yeah. Yeah, stone is pretty sturdy. Well, okay. Not the easiest thing to write on. Just just in making my point, I'll make this short, thinking about things like data rot and where you have a, a DVD or a CD that lasts 50 years or something like that. A piece of paper with ink on that, if you protect it, can last longer than that. So and yes. these are – I'm just saying. Okay. Yeah, so very good. The, uh, the tricky part I found in researching this is all the stuff that was invented in 1510 – 
I really, it's kind of hard to find anything that was specifically invented in 1510, but that lost, lots of technology actually had been going on before that because they, uh, in Europe, we were going through the Renaissance. Right, right. Now in England, in parts of it, in yeah. England, you would probably call this the high middle ages because, uh, mm, yeah. really you get into the Elizabethan era. That's when you start talking about the Renaissance in England. Mm-hmm. But yes, other parts of the world were, uh, were far more advanced than England at this sure, point. Sure. In fact, if you look at places like China, or, or the Middle East, mm-hmm. they had made advances in technology that put me- medieval Europe to shame. Yes. Um, so, but we'll get into some of that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you might have seen had you been walking around medieval Europe in 1510, the kind of technologies you might encounter. Okay. All right. So if you were a sailor and yes. you were in England in 1510 and you were one of the king's favorites, you might get a chance to serve aboard the flagship of what was the brand new Royal Navy of England, mm-hmm. the flagship being called the Mary Rose. Yes. Uh, Mary, M-A-R-Y, not M-E-R-R-Y, uh, named, uh, as far as we know, after Henry VIII's sister. Okay, then. And the Mary Rose was um, a, a fairly new kind of vessel um, in England at the time. It was uh, it was it had a Carvel hull. Carvel hull, by the way, does not mean it was Fudgy the Whale or Cookie Puss. <laughs> it's not that kind of Carvel. Yeah, now I'm all hungry. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Sorry. Um, no, the Carvel hull was a, a specific way of building a ship. Previous to Carvel hull were the, uh, the, the clinker ships. Mm-hmm. A clinker ship was a, uh, made by making overla- uh, overlapping planks. Mm-hmm. And then you had a, a little frame that you could attach to that. So the, the planks were the most important part. But uh, the Carvel hull was used a strong framework and then used planks that fit against each other. Yes. Um, in a, a, a more or less a seamless fashion. Um, they weren't really possible until you invented the saw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it turns out the saw was very important as far as the uh, development of naval warfare is concerned. High technology. Yeah, so... You would put these planks next to each other. You would caulk them so that's watertight. Mm-hmm. Also very important, as it turns out, for boats. And um, it provided the opportunity to introduce uh, watertight gun ports. Uh-huh. Also very important. So the gun ports, that allowed you to put the guns closer to the uh, the, the water line. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could close the gun ports and you uh, – they were since they were watertight, you didn't have to worry about water coming into the ship and having it capsized. And uh, – that was that was actually really important in that if you wanted to carry a lot of guns on your ship, you couldn't just put them all on the deck. If you did, then that would make the deck it would make the ship top heavy. Yeah. So whenever you would turn, you would have the 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 danger of capsizing. Sure. This actually happened. There was a um a ship that was built uh, about fifty or sixty years before the time we're talking about, where it was. The most magnificent ship you had ever seen, tons and tons of guns on it. They put a whole bunch of men on it, launched it, immediately it capsized, sank, everyone died because it was too top heavy. Yes. Now, the Mary Rose had a different design where you could have a, a guns on the deck and guns on a gun deck beneath the, the deck deck. <laughs> the deck deck? Yeah. Okay. Deck deck. And this, this was, this sounds like it's kind of, you know, basic stuff, but this is the sort of technology that uh, that Europeans began to depend upon in naval warfare, which started to play a larger role 
from about 1510 onward. Yeah. Um, and when I say that the Mary Rose was the flagship of the British Navy, you should keep in mind that the British Navy at that time consisted of about 30 ships total. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those were merchant ships that had been conscripted into the Navy. Yeah. You know, cannon at that time, uh, were not made of cast iron. No. They were made of wrought iron and, uh, bronze. Right. Um, but they did have exploding shot. Yes. Um, which would, I imagine, be pretty nasty if you happen to be on one of the other ships. Yeah. It's not something you want to get hit with. No. No. Uh, and, and bronze cannon, they were lighter. Than uh, than your iron cannon, mm-hmm. um, but they were much more expensive than iron oh, cannons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you again, it would depend upon the wealth of the nation or ship owner uh, as to what kind of cannon would be on that ship, as well as the the seaworthiness of the ship itself. I mean, if a ship couldn't carry uh, that many iron cannon, they might choose to spend the money to get the bronze cannon instead. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And of course, those those cannon uh, were more likely to be uh, matchlock cannon. Yeah, as well. let's let's talk about matchlocks for a second. It's okay. an interesting technology. So, before the matchlock was invented, the mm-hmm. way that guns worked yes. in the Middle Ages, uh, well, f- the the earliest guns were essentially just a barrel. Yeah. With a hole in them on on uh, well, you know, uh, a little hole drilled at the top of the barrel on the the. The end that the gun – that the shot does not come out of, the handle. <laughs> Basically, yeah, where the stock is. Yeah, or where the stock would be if or if, yeah, we're talking. Yeah, that's true because we're not talking about um, about personal <clears throat> weapons. We're talking like a cannon. Cannon. There were some handheld uh, weapons as well, but they were very difficult to use. Yeah, it required um, more than one person generally. It yeah, because you couldn't you know, just – yeah, exactly. One because we haven't to, gotten to that part, we're going to get to that part. <laughs> so you've got a you've got a hole drilled at the end, and uh, this is where you would put a burning wick mm-hmm. through the hole hole to ignite the gunpowder that's inside the barrel. Yes, because the shot is uh, you know closer to the end, the other end of the barrel, right? Um, and you have the gunpowder behind that there. to propel the right. shot out. Yeah, so the gunpowder ignites, and as it ignites, it gives off quite a bit of gas, and that gas is what expels the shot. Indeed. From the barrel. Uh, so that meant that you had to have at least one hand to hold a a, uh, a lit match or a wick of some sort mm-hmm. to insert it in the hole, which does mean that if you are just one single person and you have one of these rifles, you only have one hand to aim it with while you're using the other hand to light it. Mm-hmm. It's not the most accurate weapon. The matchlock kind of made this uh, – uh, took that out of your hands and put it into a mechanical hand. So to speak, I mean, the, yeah. there was a there was something called a serpentine, mm-hmm. which is an S shaped trigger, and basically, uh, at one end of the S, you have your match, and at the other end is where your finger goes. And when you move it, it basically pivoted in the center, right? So that when you pulled the trigger, it would bring the match down, and that would you know, in the flash pan, and it would set off the charge, right. essentially. So the way the flash pan works is that, uh, you know, we talked about in that that earlier example. You oh, had yes. a hole that you had to put the match through. Mm-hmm. The flash pan takes that part out of it. The, the flash pan holds a small amount of gunpowder that then like leads the primer in, charge, right? That leads in through a hole in the barrel to a larger charge of gunpowder. That's the part that actually propels the the shot. And by lighting the flash pan. The, you know, it's like those old movies where, you know, you light the one end of the gunpowder and it goes down the line and right. then lights the, the, the big barrel at the end. Mm-hmm. Same sort of concept, except in a much smaller space. You're, you light the flash, pa- flash pan, the gunpowder 
lights through the hole in the barrel, lighting the main charge in the barrel of the gun, fires off the shot. So, yeah, the the matchlock meant that you just pulled the little trigger and it would uh, bring the the lit fuse in contact with the flash pan. Uh, eventually, you would get a flash pan cover over that. Mm-hmm. That would uh, also be hooked up to the trigger so that when you pulled the trigger, the flash pan cover would slide out of the way as the fuse comes down. And that was important to protect the powder mm-hmm. because, of course, if the powder were to get wet. Yes, that's a problem. Your gun was useless. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> even foggy conditions could mess up uh, uh, the effectiveness of a gun. And when we talk about guns, we're talking mainly – we're talking about cannon. We're talking about the arquebus. Yes, um, which was a a personal weapon. You could uh, it was essentially the the precursor to the musket, mm-hmm. and uh, which of course is precursor to the rifle, and um, it it ended up revolutionizing warfare. Yeah, well, the arquebus also had a uh, it, some people called it a hack butt because it had a uh, basically a little hook on it, and uh, what would happen is you know castles were sort of going through a technological change too because now that uh people were beginning to use firearms personal firearms not just cannon um you know they needed a way to they had all these arrow slits in the walls of the castle mm-hmm. which needed to be you know which people needed to use for their firearms so mm-hmm. the thing is as as you mentioned before Jonathan they the powder in these weapons gave off a lot of gas and had you know, packed a bit of a wallop when we're talking about a, uh, you know, uh, recoil. Yeah. And so that's what the hook was for. Basically, you'd use the hook to hook over the uh, the stone wall of the castle to keep it from, you know, knocking you back. Yeah. Pushing as you, you fired the, the weapon. other wall of the castle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Castles actually ended up becoming both castles and armor became less and less important as yes. gunpowder became more important because mm-hmm. they didn't provide much of a of a protection. And so, uh, countries had to readjust the way they conducted warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't like the old days where you just got a bunch of people all in various kinds of armor and then had them clash together or you hold up in a castle and tried to wait out a siege. You couldn't really do that in a era where, um, the, the basic weapons could punch holes through your walls like they were nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, true. You know, I'm kind of bummed out that we didn't get to talk in great detail about flintlock and the wheel lock mechanisms. Yeah, but those aren't those invented are, yet. No, no. Although the, the wheel lock apparently was developed around 1515, so yeah. it's not much in the future. And depending on who you ask, they, they might say that flintlocks were around. But really, flintlocks, I mean... People don't, didn't document stuff as accurately yeah. as they yeah, do turn, now. So turns, <laughs> out, turns out the guy didn't wake up in like, July 1514. Invented the flintlock today. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't. It turns out that didn't happen. But interesting bit of trivia. I found out the reason that these are called fill in the blank here lock was because locksmiths used to work with a lot of the mechanisms similar to what, you know, the kinds of uh, technology used here. So if you wanted these things uh, built for your weaponry, you would consult with a locksmith who would work on the uh, little tiny little pieces that you would need to add to your uh Firearms. That makes kind sense. Of interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, because you you think you know that there were no our definitions hadn't really taken effect there. We don't we yeah. don't have the same things like engineers the way we have engineers now. No, you had philosophers, no. you had scientists of, of various uh, rudimentary sciences at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Although, if, again, if you go to the Middle East, they were much further along and in China as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to talk also a couple of other things that are related to guns. Oh, yeah. Because so, we're gun crazy. Um, well, it was, it was awfully prominent, too. Yeah. A lot of the technology in the Middle Ages dealt with warfare. Yeah. I mean, it just – that was – you think about invention and uh, you know the whole – necessity driving invention. Well, in mm-hmm. the Middle Ages, it was pretty much necessary for you to be able to attack and defend. Yes. Because um, that's pretty much what the entire history was about in large part. So one of the interesting uh, things that made cannon very possible, mm-hmm. actually a couple of different inventions, one of them was the uh, trunnion. The trunnion. Trunnion is a fancy word for the posts that stick out the side of a cannon that allow you to change the elevation of the cannon. Oh, I figured it was a combination of a truffle and an onion. No, but that does sound tasty. <laughs> no, th- this uh, this was just a, what allowed you to pivot a cannon upward or downward so that you could oh, aim yes. it instead of it just pointing in a direction hoping that that's good enough. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you had limbers. Limbers are these two-wheeled devices that you could hook up to a carriage, uh, you would mount a gun on them and it just made it easier for you to, um, to transport artillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another big change by this time in the middle ages. Earlier in the middle ages, if you wanted to lay siege to a castle, uh, you either had to have large artillery pieces that you could assemble once you got there, or you were using things like, um, trebuchets or even, if you're using even older technology, ballista and catapults. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just so you guys know, uh, those are technologies that use basic physics to propel a projectile a very far away with a lot of force. These days, pumpkins. Yes. So like a catapult would use uh, a rope yes. that mm-hmm. had been wound very tightly, a skein actually. Mm-hmm. It's wound very, very tightly. And that would be enough to, uh, you know, you stick one end of the catapult through that, that rope and then you wind it really tight and that provides the tension that when you release it, it makes the arm go up till it hits a rest and then Mm -hmm. that propels a projectile. Uh, ballista used two of those. It looked like a giant crossbow, but in fact used two, um, uh, skeins to propel a projectile. And then the trebuchet was a little different. It was a sling on the end of a long arm. Um, it was actually a lever, so you had a long end of the lever, which had the the sling attached to it, and then on the short end you had a counterweight, a very very heavy counterweight. And when you released the uh, the mechanism on it, it, the counterweight would fall down, propelling the long arm up and flinging whatever the projectile was in the direction of your target. Yes, and those were all the older forms of projectile weaponry that essentially got phased out once cannon became. Uh, a real player in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you probably still saw a few of them in 1510, depending on where you were. No, it's, I'm sure. Um, so are we done with military type stuff? I was going to talk about plate armor. You want to talk about plate armor? Just you, a little bit. Go ahead. So in the 1510, iron is still king. Yes. You're going to see a lot of iron armor. You're not going to see very much steel. Steel no. was being made, but it was incredibly difficult to make. Yes. Um, to make steel, you had to heat iron up quite, quite hot, uh, introduce carbon into it, but not too much carbon because if you put too much carbon in it, you got pig iron, mm-hmm. which is not great for armor as it turns out. It kind of <laughs> shatters. Um, details, details. You want enough carbon in there to make the iron hard, but mm-hmm. not so much that it becomes brittle. 
right. has to still be malleable. Mm-hmm. So steel is actually pretty complicated. It's really expensive. Um, uh, most armor is made out of iron, but at this point, you do see full plate suits of armor. Mm-hmm. And full plate, that means that there's there are these various hinged plates that uh, cover the entire body. Um, that provide as much freedom of movement as possible while still providing as much protection as possible. Uh, and full plate armor, depending on, you know, what kind of the quality of the iron or steel that was uh, used to make it, could even ward off a shot from an arquebus at the right range. Right. If you're right up close to someone, chances are that shot's going to go right through the armor and into you, which is yeah. bad news. But um, but that's still in 1510. It was still fairly common to see soldiers wearing this kind of armor because the the guns had not reached a point of sophistication where they had rendered it completely obsolete. Yeah, yeah. And Henry VIII himself was known to wear it quite a few times. He actually entered a lot of uh, uh, tourneys um, secretly. In fact, uh, in fact, I think a year after he was coronated, he entered a tournament in secret. And gained quite a bit of uh, respect because he was a, a very gifted uh, uh, combatant. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Then not, again, a great, I don't. not a great wrestler, but <laughs> King of France beat him in a wrestling match. That was at the uh, the Fields of Cloth and Gold in okay. 1520. Okay. All right. Now I'm done with the military stuff. Okay. Because one, one technology that I found that was apparently – created fairly close to 1510 was the watch. Yes. Uh, by uh, Germany's Peter Henlein. Um, he was in uh, Nuremberg, Germany, and um, which at that point wasn't technically Germany because Germany didn't technically exist as a country. Um, but uh, some people say that uh, – actually, I had seen reports that it was, in fact, invented, like the pocket watch, invented in 1510 – but uh, there appeared to have been prototypes existing as early as maybe 1505 or so. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. that's pretty close. And again, this is something that I think of as having been around since, you know, forever and ever, so to speak, in the case of this. But uh, uh, no, the, the watch is uh, starting to make its appearance around the, the early 16th century. I imagine they would be very expensive and probably not very reliable. And the, the secret to the watch was the fusée, mm-hmm. which is uh, – this is a little complicated. It's kind of hard to explain. But a watch is the, – the thing that powers these classic watches is a spring right? inside the watch. And uh, around the spring is a barrel. When the spring is wound tight, it then turns the barrel. So attached to this barrel is a little chain. Mm-hmm. The chain goes to a cone that has um, grooves in it. Yeah. All right. So mm-hmm. the, the, it attaches to at the top of the cone and the chain winds around all the way to the base of the cone. Right. All right. As the spring unfurls and the barrel turns, it pulls the chain from this, uh, this fusee, this cone. Mm-hmm. And the chain goes from the top down to the bottom. And once it gets to the bottom, that's when your watch has, is, needs to be wound again. Right. When you wind it, you're actually winding that chain around the cone again. This is what provides the power to the watch hands to, uh, to go around the clock face. Earliest, earlier clocks, by the way, only had one hand. They had one hand that indicated where in the hour it was. So you mm-hmm. still had the 12 numbers, but you would look and if the hand was between the, you know, one and the two, you'd think, all right, well, it's about 1.30. Yeah. It's about as, uh, as close as you would get. Um, 
but yeah, that's the, the fusee is what allowed both pocket watches and you know table clocks right, to exist. Right. Because before that, you had to use weights to yeah. to power the clock. Yeah, the uh, the wristwatch came around much much later. Yeah, yeah, as a the fact, swatch even later. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, another technology I was thinking about that would have been. It, it had been out for a few decades, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, movable type. Ah, uh, Gutenberg. Gu- yes. So we're going back to 1455 or so? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it was making an impact. Yes. And, and was spreading very rapidly around the turn of the century. Now, movable type was new to the Western world, although, uh, again, yeah, in China, been... they had, they had had movable type for a few centuries. Yes. But, um, but then in, it did really revolutionize uh, learning in mm-hmm. medieval Europe. Of it course, certainly made printing much more inexpensive. Right. Up to that point, you essentially would get printing by hiring monks to write a text for you. Yes. And that's where you got those beautiful illuminated scripts where it was amazing calligraphy. And, you know, you figure that they must have been paid by the brushstroke. But uh, the... The movable type, yeah, you took a lot of the maybe the artistry out of it, but mm-hmm. in in turn, you made it much easier to produce lots and lots of copies. Yes, and so that that's really what propelled the the whole Renaissance in all of Europe was the fact that you suddenly had this this easy access, relatively easy access to printed works. You know, although thinking about it, if the monks are copying a book word for word, wouldn't that be a form of desktop publishing? So anyway, uh, let's talk about a, a true Renaissance man. Yes, Leonardo yes. da Vinci. Since I truly messed up the Renaissance, uh, you should have stopped me. What? How did I? How did you mess up the Renaissance? Well, then we weren't talking about the Renaissance. Uh, anyway, the Renaissance man, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci, yes. of course, was fifteen ten. It was toward the end of his life. Yes, yes. He he died in fifteen nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a. Uh, a real genius. I mean, not just a, a, an amazing artist, but an inventor. And mm-hmm. of course, he had that great code. So anyway, and actually, rate, and actually, it turns out in, in 1510, it was around uh, some of the time when he was coming up with scientific ideas. He wasn't yep. doing as much painting. Oh, he was teaching at that he, point. He did do the Mona Lisa toward that time mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had already done The Last Supper. And um, yeah, he was he was. Thinking of inventions, he had already kind of come up with the whole idea about uh, powered flight, mm-hmm. which never worked during his lifetime. Uh, but he did work out the the basic principles of things like lift, mm-hmm. which no one had really managed to do up to that point. Um, around 1510, he actually drew the first documented sketch of a fetus in the womb. Wow. Yeah, seven months old. Well, I did. Uh, I, I did. Mean, that was the fetus's age. Leonardo was significantly older than that. <laughs> I did notice that uh, that period, too, was when he was really interested in the anatomy of the human body. Yeah. So that makes sense that that would have been. Yeah, 1510 was a little after he had drawn the Vitruvian Man, which is the infamous right. mm-hmm. uh, uh, painting that he did uh, to show the, the proportions of the human body. Mm-hmm. Did you know that for most people, the length of your pinky is the same as the length of your nose? If you lay it down on the bridge of your nose? Huh. Yeah. You know who I learned that from? Leonardo da Vinci. Really? Well, at least the one that works at the Georgia Renaissance Festival I did. <laughs> um, hey, Houston, how you doing? So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, this time he also invented, at least according to the sources I was reading, uh, a horizontal water wheel, which mm-hmm. is kind of the uh, the precursor to the turbine. Sure. Again, yeah. these are inventions that actually 
existed in other parts of the world, but in Europe were unheard of at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, also ball bearings, scissors. Guy was brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, he could have made a fortune. Yeah, he could have. Yeah. He got into a lot also, of trouble too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, but, uh, maybe just a hair. He also, he also drew up, uh, an invention which was never actually built. Uh, a lot of Leonardo's inventions were never built. They right. were just sketches or concepts. Mm-hmm. But he came up with a concept that would have essentially been the first tank. It was an armored vehicle to protect uh, people with inside in, during warfare. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. A lot of his inventions uh, had to do with various uh, kinds of warfare. He also drew up plans for an enormous crossbow. Wow. That was, uh, according to some estimates, supposed to be as, as wide as a hundred feet. Gee whiz. <laughs> yeah. Well, the crossbow was already falling out of fashion. The regular crossbow was yes. falling out of fashion thanks to, you know, the arquebus. Yes. I wanted to say that again. Yes. The, the crossbow was a very slow way of killing your enemies. Yeah. But, uh, but I imagine that, uh, Leo's version being much larger would have more of an effect. Yeah, I, uh, again, it was never built, but it was definitely one of those things that you took a look at the design and you thought, wow, I hope nobody gets a hold of one of these things. Because <laughs> if they do, I want to move. I'm but, sure um, you would have gotten the point. Yeah. And other, the interesting thing about the Middle Ages, and mm-hmm. uh, especially around this time, is that how slowly technology actually evolved. I mean, you a part of that is just because, uh, again, before movable type, it was really hard to to pursue learning. Yeah. Yeah. It took real polymaths like Da Vinci or, uh, uh, you know, other geniuses of the time or, mm-hmm. or in other parts of the world to really push things forward, which meant that, you know, you pretty much had to wait because there were just, there was no way to dedicate your life to that kind of thing. Right. Most schools were of uh, a religious nature where you would learn math and you would learn languages, you would learn philosophy, you'd learn lots of important things, but it wasn't really, you know, you weren't learning to be an engineer. Right. You know, you learned on the job if you wanted to be something like that, like an architect. You you would become an apprentice and learn your trade that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so progress was very slow. It wasn't until really the early Renaissance when the the um, the printed word was really coming into to full play that you started to see the explosion in learning and then the rapid development of technology. Wow. You know, and I, I feel like. As, with as much as we talked about, you know, we're sort of running out of time here, but, uh, you know, there's still far more that we could cover. Of course, yeah. this is the stuff that our sister podcast usually talks about. Yeah. And speaking of which, uh, recently stuff you should know recorded a podcast about castles. So if you oh. have, if you have not had your fill of medieval tech, I recommend you check that out because, um, awesome. Yeah, the the Castles podcast I'm sure will be really really interesting. I haven't heard it yet because they recorded it about an hour before we recorded this. Okay. And I was not in the room. <laughs> so um but hopefully Annette, that that kind of uh fills that that need to hear stuff about renaissance fairs and and create the society of creative anachronism. That's S C A. Mm-hmm. Uh not really our field, but we decided to try try and tackle it anyway. Although some of them have been spotted by the uh Google Street View cameras. That's true. That's true. Yeah, we could way to rope that in. If any of you have any questions, hopefully dealing with technology, you can shoot us an email. That's techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you might think, well, gosh, is any of this on the website? Actually, yes. How Iron and Steel Work is an excellent article uh, uh, co-written by Marshall Brain and Robert Lamb. 
I recommend that. It's a great article on the site if you want to learn more about the history of iron and steel. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?